we can all do a very good service to all women by really kind of reaching out and building up young women. This is Women Killing It. Each week, women who are killing it in their careers share their stories and advice for making it in today's working world. Your host is Sally Hubbard. Today, I'm talking to Sherry Scott, the founder and principal of Scott Architecture. Sherry is also the author of a book called Dream Inspire Design, What a Residential Architect Wants to Tell You About the Custom Home Process. Sherry, you are killing it. Thank you, Sally. Thanks for coming on my show today. Absolutely. Thank you for talking with me. One thing that I would like to start off is just hearing about Scott Architecture and what kind of services Scott Architecture provides. Yeah, so we are a full-service residential architecture firm, and we like to say that we work with people um, not only to design the shell of their house, but to design the entire um, home. We do all the interiors, We and, and most importantly, we work with our clients through the entire build process. There are a lot of pitfalls that happen during the build process, and a lot of uh, people uh, tend to leave the architect out of that last part, and that's kind of where we shine to bring, to bring a project through to a successful conclusion. And can you tell, also tell us about your book and what inspired you to write the book? Yeah, so the book, it was... Um, once we kind of made the transition in my business to become a full-service architecture firm, I found that clients were coming in to my office for a very first meeting and, and constantly telling me, we don't know where to start. We've never worked with an architect before. We don't know how the whole process works. And so I would spend that full initial hour, instead of talking about exciting things that, you know, what they wanted their house to look like and how their family lives in it. Instead of talking about all those fun things, we were talking about what the process looks like, how they have to pay for things, who does what. And, and so as I was telling people the same things over and over, I thought I should just write all of this down and send someone a copy. So what I ended up doing was writing this book um, of all the things that I would tell people over and over. And now I send them a copy before our first meeting. And by the time they come here, they're much more relaxed. They feel a little bit more in control. They understand how the process is going to work. And it, it makes our, our first meeting just that much better because they already kind of know my personality and, and, and they, they know what questions should be asked and, and what information they should have before they come. So it's been a great business process for me. What year did you found Scott Architecture? So I started Scott Architecture in 2008, basically from a, that was when the recession hit full bore here. I'm in Dayton, Ohio, and it just was a really bad time for everyone, for builders, for architects, everyone in the construction industry. And even though I had a very solid job, which I had had for 12 years, it just, it was, it was tough. And I, we weren't really sure what was going to happen there at that firm. And coincidentally, my husband got a job offer out of town. 
I ended up, we ended up as a family taking that job. And that was kind of my jump to say, okay, now's the time, you know, why not at the beginning of a terrible recession to start a business, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) So we did it. We launched in Scott Architecture. And basically up until that point, I had always worked part-time. I, um, just to back up a little bit, um, you know, right out of college, I got a job. I ended up, I got married and had kids right away, shortly after I graduated from college. And I, I thought all along through college that I would be kind of a corporate climber and just work all the time and always keep climbing. And as I got married and had kids, it just, that just wasn't, that didn't work for me. So I ended up finding a job that I loved and I learned a lot and um, I worked there part-time for 12 years. And then as, even as I went to start my own firm, I remained part-time for the first five years or so of having my own practice until very recently. Was that hard to do? I mean, I know that starting up any company and being the founder is, you know, there's just so much to do. Um, and it's just a tremendous effort and it requires a ton of hard work. Was it hard to do that on a part-time basis? Um, not really. I'll tell you the harder part is now as we're growing, it's much harder for me, um, as we're growing because when, when I was consciously keeping it at a part-time job, I really was kind of picking and choosing projects and it was only me that I had to worry about. Now we are uh, a company of seven, a team of seven, and, um, and there's a whole lot more responsibility to meet payroll and to keep everyone busy and to keep morale high. And um, I found that that's much more difficult. So there have been a couple of ways um, and I'd like to share three things in particular that really um, helped me as we're growing and making these big transitions. Okay. First, I, I recommend everyone find a community. And I think that's self-explanatory, but I struggled with finding my community. I ended up finding Entree Architect Academy, which is um, just for small firm architects. It's an online group. I've met many of my closest friends actually through that community. But the reason it, it gelled for me was because around here we have the local AIA, which is um, American Institute of Architects. And we also have a home builders group. And I, I, I joined each of those and I went to meetings and I just didn't fit. I don't know, you know, I, I, I tend not to believe that it did, I didn't fit only because I was a woman, but it's definitely a male dominated field and definitely uh, men and all of those groups led by men and um, attended by men. And it, it just wasn't a good fit. I wasn't getting that sense of community that I was looking for. Um, and on the other hand, I'm not the type of person to join necessarily labeled women's groups either, because I think those are very limiting or they can be, and they have the potential to move you into kind of a victim mentality or an us versus them. 
Um, and that wasn't what I was looking for either. So once I finally found this online community group of people that I could um, ask questions and ask opinions and get some feedback, that helped me a lot. Quick question, guys. Have you joined my email community? I share all kinds of tips from the amazing women that I interview on how to kill it in your career. My emails are all about us working together to maximize our career results and our happiness. So we're filling the mentoring gap for women and we are lifting each other up. When you sign up today, I'll send you some awesome emails, including my seven step action plan to killing it. To sign up, just text all one word, killing it to 38470. That's 38470. And the word to text with no spaces is killing it. Now back to the show. So did this online group have um, more women members than the other groups you had tried to participate in? Um, good question. More for sure. Yes. I think because it's small firm architects uh, rather than the AIA tends to be more of the multidiscipline and larger firms. So yes, definitely more women, probably more as a proportion, there's always going to be more men in our field, but, um, yeah, for sure. More women. I actually had another architect on, on my show named Caroline Ola, and she was speaking about how it was very male dominated where she was working at a large architecture firm in New York City, and she ended up going to start her own customized furniture company. Huh. It's kind of this interesting thought, is this what women, it's a common tendency in, in some of these um, industries that are very male dominated and not very open to, you know, accommodating some of the demands for flexibility in particular that that women seek, that women often leave those industries right <laughs> or they go out or they go out on their own right and, sure mm -hmm. and so i guess that's just an interesting thing to think about is how can we change those industries so that women have both options so they can go out on their own and they could also stay and and work with men in a, in a better environment the firm that, the job that you had before there um this one you said was part-time right so you were able to get a flexible job situation in architecture is that unusual it, it is unusual and um I really looked for it. It was not something, uh, you know, I, I basically went in and asked for it. They were looking for a full-time person. It was 1996. And it just everywhere I interviewed at that time, I said, I'm looking for a part-time position. And we really didn't discuss too much about how long that part-time position would last. They knew I had a young baby and um, I was coming in and just asking for part-time. And I remember the day, like a year later, my boss finally came to me and said, Sherry, like, how long, how long is this going to be part-time? And I find, you know, by that time, they knew I was a good worker. I knew that I wasn't, my job wasn't in jeopardy. And I just told him it's forever. Like, this is <laughs> what I'm going to do. And I so they made, you know, they just learned and they, they learned to accommodate me. I worked very hard for them when I, you know, the hours I was there and I think it worked out for both of us. It's very interesting because I just had guests on the podcast who are starting, started this company called work W E R K. And they're trying to offer flexible yet still high powered, high ambition jobs for women. And they're partnering with, um, corporations to offer those jobs. 
And one of the things that they said was that if you go into a job as it being part-time from the very beginning, you're likely to have more success with that arrangement than what I personally have done in the past. I was full-time and I scaled back to part-time. Right. And then it's, you're still doing the same job. You're still working a full, you still have the same full-time job requirements, but you're just squeezing it into less days and stressing yourself out like crazy and getting paid less. (laughs) Right, right. So the responsibility stays the same and everyone else's expectations of you stay the same. Like everyone expects you to produce what you've already been producing. So I, yeah, I can understand where that could be a pitfall. But the other thing is, you know, do you think by virtue of working part-time that you were actually doing less um, responsibilities than you would do full-time or do you think you were just working more efficiently? I have always been a very efficient worker. And I think that because I knew my, my favorite schedule, I switched around a lot of times, you know, different hours, different days over the years. But my favorite schedule was 10 hour days, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then I had, you know, four days for family time. Um, But those three days, I mean, it was, it was head down and work really hard and have as many meetings as I could and get as much off my desk as possible and then get everything set up so I could be gone for two days, um, two work days. So yeah, I think for sure, it's a different kind of focus. That's very interesting. I've not heard of that kind of a schedule, but that that makes a lot of sense, actually. I know from my own work that I do, that's very um, cerebral and involves a lot of intellectual, you know, real uh, concentration. Um, I often feel like it's the end of the day that really interferes with my ability to get stuff done. That kind of like, okay, day's up, got to go pick up the kids from their after school program or whatnot, you know, where I would just love that luxury to work until, you know, all night long. Um, right. <laughs> when you're right. in the zone, right. when you're in the zone, I like that. That's very interesting. Yeah. That was my favorite schedule. And I think I was the most efficient, um, with that. And you said you had two other things. You said you, there were three things that you had learned. And the first was community. And I think we got, we, we haven't heard the other two. Yeah, no, the, um, so one thing was learning from outside sources, particularly if you are, if you're in a specific niche in your industry, I know with residential architects, we tend to only learn from each other or only go to architecture conventions. And I happened across, have you heard of um, Donald Miller and Story Brand? No, I have not. So it's, it's a marketing. I went to, I guess you'd call it a seminar, but there were only like 15 people in the room. Um, it was a marketing seminar and it wasn't, uh, you know, not to make a commercial for him, but it was, it, it was, just a really good way for me to learn to focus and refine our culture and how we serve our clients. Um, In architecture, there's a a whole lot of ego going on typically. And we learned through this whole story brand workshop to turn all of that around and realize the story we're working within is the client's story. And that, um, you know, they, the clients get to win at the end of the day. And we've been there every step of the way, guiding them and informing them and serving them. And I just, I feel like once I got that down and I had to learn that from a different industry, but once I got that down and I understood who we're serving and how we should guide them, um, it just, it gave me a total turn and direction. So 
you know, I, I think the lesson here is to to kind of broaden your scope if you're, especially if you're a leader, you know, look outside your industry, look for other people that are doing things other ways and, and glean information from them instead of the same way things have been going. I like that because sometimes your profession can really affect your world, your worldview. Yes, right. <laughs> Right, and, and you can't see outside the worldview that you've kind of been trained in. That's that's excellent advice. So after those two things, after I found community, and after I kind of reached out and and got a little more focus and a little more direction that I was comfortable with, and in and my leadership style, we really started growing pretty quickly. That was about uh, two years ago, and so then my next hurdle really was trying to figure out how to grow. Like I didn't know how to grow. I was very comfortable being a great employee with my firm for 12 years. And then I was very comfortable just kind of picking and choosing projects and working on things I wanted to work on. And then all of a sudden here I am growing and hiring people. And I had so many more questions. Um, so, and, and I heard recently somebody was saying, you know, I, as the leader of this team, I have to have the answer all the time. They'll come to me with that. You know, my team members come to me with questions and I'm expected to have the answer. My clients are coming to me with questions and I need to have the answer. And I'm good on all of that with architecture. But then when we talk about management and um, business building and um all of the business questions, I needed to find somebody that had answers for me that I could go to and find the answers. So, you know, there's so many different ways uh, to find someone like that. For us, it came with um, Charette Venture Group, who they're an, an investment firm in the architecture space. And basically, I signed up with them. Um, we have a partnership agreement, and they bring resources to me. So for instance, I, through them, I have a business coach and a financial person and a branding expert and now a website development. We're redoing um, a lot of things here. Actually, we're rebranding, changing to Springhouse Architects very soon in the next month or so. And, but, but finding someone else that can bring answers to me has just lightened my load quite a bit because now I just can call, I know who to call to find out these answers. And then that relieves me to go and, you know, give my answer, have the answers ready for my team and for my clients. You know, um, this has been a very common thread in the, my podcast in terms of advice that women have been offering. And, and it's something that doesn't come naturally to us, which is to ask for help. Right. right. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we think we need to do it all ourselves. And yeah. um, actually just in the, I just had a recent episode with a woman named Alex Morak who started her own marketing agency in Los Angeles. And, you know, she said she has basically her, you know, her book of all the different experts in the different areas that she can pull from. Um, and mm -hmm. that that's been key to her success. And I think, you know, it's often our our first impulse is to do it all ourselves, think we have to do it all ourselves, you know, think that, you know, we're the only ones that can do it. And that actually really interferes with our ability to be very efficient, productive, not exhausted, right? 
Right, um, right. Cool. And also, it reminds me of another bit of advice that I've heard a lot, which is that you don't actually have to have all the answers. <laughs> right. <laughs> Before you jump. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But you're right. What you said before, you have to be willing to to ask for help because you don't have to have all the answers before you start, but you have to figure it out eventually. You know, you can only slog your way through for so long. Right. But you can, you know, start to call on um, help from others. So you don't need to think, oh, get all stressed out and think, I, I've got to have all the answers. And if I don't have an answer, you know, that I'm failing, you know, that I'm not being, you know, perfect. Yeah. I know that in my career, I had to get comfortable with saying, you know, I'm going to look into that for you and I'll get right back to you. <laughs> right. Good. Yes. That's good advice. What are some strategies that you use? Um, now that you're not part-time anymore, your firm is really growing. What are some strategies that you use to make all the things in your life that you have to juggle more manageable? <laughs> that's a really good question. So it's, it's always a struggle, honestly. It's, it, it is working. My kids now are, my oldest is 20 and he has moved to Nashville. And then I have two uh, high school teenage boys still at home. And honestly, one of the best things I did was raise them to be very independent. So they, um, while they still need parents and I'm still full-time mom to them, they're very independent kids. I still enjoy volunteering with some of the things that they do in high school, but I've just really had to step it back. And that was very hard to do. That was one of the things I liked doing the most and, and, you know, something had to give. And so as they enter high school, I think that that's, that's one of the places where I kind of started stepping back. About that volunteer work in school. That's something that causes me a bit of strife because I feel that I'm getting requests from the kids' schools all the time to volunteer on help out with different things. And what I really would like to do is privatize it. I'm like, would the whole class be offended if I said, let's get a task rabbit that we can just fund right. and, and have <laughs> them come? And, you know, we get requests like come and help the math, te the teacher rip out the math worksheets, you know, and it's yeah. like this doesn't no parent has time for this. And why don't we just all fund an account and have this be paid work? Because I have this kind of you know, a little thing that gets me a little agitated, which is I feel that, you know, we know that women do so much unpaid labor, right? Volunteering mm -hmm. is wonderful, but it is predominantly women who do this unpaid labor. And it is labor. And we could, you know, pay someone to do this and, and pool everyone's money. Um, you know, ideally, it would be wonderful if, you know, the taxes paid for these services at the schools. But since our government is set up in a way that the schools are always so um, starved for resources... I still would like it to not fall so disproportionately on women's shoulders, even though it can be very enjoyable. It's very hard um, to do much paid work if you're spending so much time doing unpaid labor. Um, right. So I have a, right. I have a bit and, of an issue about that. <laughs> yeah, and I understand that. And and the way our whole system is set up really is to kind of make you feel guilty if you can't do it, right? Right. Um. And I just think that, well, I think a couple of things. First of all, there are women that have time to do that and enjoy it. And I, I, I was never one of those moms that terribly enjoyed, you know, going and being in a classroom full of third grade kids. I just did not enjoy that. So I would, I would send stuff in, send in store-bought things. And 
I don't know. I guess at some point you just have to write it off and think if that's not good enough, then they can quit asking me for things. Right. But always know that there's, there is some other person out there, you know, we're all so different. There's some other person out there is like, I can't wait to tell my kids get to third grade and I get to go to every party, you know, and that's awesome. And that's how the system works. I'm, I couldn't wait till my kids got older and they're in high school and I can kind of hang out with their friends and, and, you know, they're funny and they have their own personality and, and just, and that's my personality. That's when I want to be around them. So I think it all in the grand scope of the world, I think that's how it works out. But the problem is when our kids are in third grade and we don't want to be there or we can't be there, we feel terribly guilty about it. And then it's, it's a bad cycle we kind of get into trying to fix it when really we should just let it be what it is. Yeah, I've definitely worked on just um, letting go of the guilt um, because I just yeah. know it's not manageable for me. On the other hand, there are some events that you just, you know, particularly the ones that the kids are looking forward for you being there where you feel that yeah. if I'm not there, I'm, my child is going to be crying their eyes out that their mother's not there. And I've seen this happen I, at summer camp this summer. I saw these kids crying because their moms couldn't be there. And I was just kind of angry because I was like, we're all paying so much money for this summer camp so we can work. Could you please stop planning activities in the middle of the workday? Because oh, guess what? Right. This is not what the world looks like anymore. I just feel like there's this disjunct with reality. You know, school ends at 2.30. What universe... Right. What universe does that make sense? You know, I have a yeah. whole, that, we could go on a whole nother topic about that, but I feel that definitely setting your priorities and deciding, look, this is something that I can do or I can't do and letting go of the guilt is very important. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think it is. Um, another thing I was talking to a girlfriend about was, um, you know, really in my life, and I'm not sure this, I'm sure it applies to someone else, but not everyone is that. I kind of realized with this big transition of me turning, you know, to kind of grow my business, I can't, I, you can, you can separate things into 20 year segments in your life. And like the first 20 years is going to be education and just building, educating, getting the certificates you're supposed to get, getting all of the right tickets you're supposed to get, getting ready for the next 20, which for me ended up the next 20 years was all family building. And, you know, I was married, I had young kids, I kept in my career because that was very important to me, but it was not my primary focus. I, I basically was working those years, putting in time and learning a lot and almost biding my time, although I, I loved my work and I, would, I wouldn't have not worked. But those 20 years really were my main focus was family and um, kids and volunteering when I could, but keeping my foot in the door uh, career wise. And now I'm magically at the next 20 years, which I see totally as career building. And I feel like, yes, I still have two kids at home, but they're very independent. But I can, I can really put my focus now in my business. And I think that where a lot of women kind of drive themselves crazy is when they have multiple focuses at one time. I think that there always has to be priority and you always have to sit down and really 
you know, there will always be a priority. Either you're going to choose what your priority is, which there's no wrong answer, by the way, or someone else is going to force a priority on you. Kind of like you were saying with the schools, you know, they're trying to force the volunteerism priority on you. And, and I think you probably just need to be a, a little more focused on um, what your chosen priority is right now. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think also um, to this point about the different phases of life, I had um, a woman named Samantha Edis on the show, and she's a, a work-life balance expert. And one thing uh-huh. that she said is those early childhood years are really the uh, career maintenance years. Like you're just maintaining. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And I think it's wise, like you said, to keep your foot in the door. Because I've also had the CEO of iRelaunch, which she um, she is uh, trying to help women relaunch into the careers. And it's not easy if you've had a long time off. So I do think I heard a- that interview. That was good. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> I do think it's um, easier if you've kept your foot in the door, Um, but, you know, you do have to realize, especially those early childhood years when, you know, you're getting no sleep and you're like delirious, (laughs) that maybe it's just kind of preserving, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, I think actually the timing of your life is a little different than, you know, what is the norm where I live out here in Brooklyn, where literally 40 is like, oh, time to have a baby. I'm 40. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it might shift um, a lot because you, you said you had children right out of college, right? I did, right. Yeah. So it can kind of be different. Those phases can be a little different, but I have her. So I think actually people, a lot of the people in Brooklyn here tend to do that career building and then they get to a comfortable spot and then they have the kids. But it is right. It's picking a priority for a different time. And I think, you know, when the kids are more independent and older, then there's a lot of women who have talked about having kind of a career resurgence in their, you know, empty nest years even. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, for me, I'm really looking forward to that. And I have quite a few friends that are, you know, their kids are getting older and moving on too. And they're facing empty nest and yet they're a little bit at a loss of you know now they're thinking what am I going to do and not that they're unhappy with their choices in any way they you know they wouldn't change anything they did but I do look and I think for my own personality thank goodness I you know kept current and 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 kept my foot in the door all those years because um, I'm in a great place now moving forward. Not to keep bringing up old episodes, but it's just reminding me, you're reminding me of so many things. And uh, there was an, I did an episode, I recommend to your friends that are feeling that way to check out the Patty Clark episode, because she entirely specializes in coaching women who are facing emptiness. And often a lot of them are going through, there's a phenomenon of the gray divorce. So it's actually 40, ages like 45 to 60, there's like an epidemic of divorce rates being up. So there's this (laughs) emptiness loss. Then there's the divorce loss, and then some people that even are retiring, and then they're just completely lost. <laughs> so, right, um, right. so she actually her she has a book, and her whole um, the book is called This Way Up, and it's all about having women get in touch with their self and their what brings them joy and get into the flow and, and reconnect with their self because you know, which which I think which is also my first women killing it challenge. I think this is something that we all kind of lose touch with, right? We kind of lose touch right. with our own self, our own desires and wants and, and what brings us happiness. 
Yeah, for sure. So speaking of which, can I share one last thing with you? Oh, yeah, for sure. So what brings me happiness? So I, I always say, you know, I love my work. I love what we're creating and building, but I have a pretty good perspective that it's work. It's my career. Um, but what I'm really passionate about is connecting with these, with teenage girls. Um, and I think that, that it's, I think as women, when we, when we get to the point where we have a little bit more time and, and probably a little bit more maturity and a little bit more perspective of how long life is, I think that we can all do a very good service to all women by really kind of reaching out and building up young women. For me, and everyone connects with people in a different way, and I I love, you know, all of the girl STEM challenges and, you know, Girl Scouts and all of the kind of girl power movements that are going on now, but that all, I don't fit into any of those. But where I do fit is just very organically, I kind of came into contact with um, some teenage girls and I would just start, I would, we'd, we'd become, I don't want to use the word friends because that sounds kind of weird for a, you know, 45 year old woman to be friends with a teenage girl, but I basically just love on them. And I, I, I met them through different circumstances in their lives. And, um, I heard a quote and that's what kind of solidified it. And I thought, Oh, that's what I'm doing. I heard a quote that said, you should be the person that you needed at the hardest time in your life. And when I heard that, I thought, that's exactly what I'm doing with these girls, because I had a very difficult time in high school for a number of reasons. And I took a number of bad paths that don't need to be discussed here. But, you know, I just feel very strongly about being a person in these young girls' lives that, you know, if crisis happens, and we all know it will happen eventually to teenage girls, then they just have one more person. You know, they have great parents, and they have friends, and they have all of the support system, but I just can't help thinking, just one more person, you know, just one more person that says in the morning, I hope you have a great day, you know, and ask them, I Snapchat them when I know they're out with their friends and I say, make good decisions. <laughs> I'm sure they roll their eyes. I just love this. I love this because I have been really tormented by what I feel like are the pressures on teenage girls these days with social yeah. media and just this kind of image obsessed culture that we're in. I, I'm, I'm finding it to be such a strange time in history because on the one hand, I feel like we're having another wave of feminism and girl power. Sure. And there's like, you know, we have our first female, female candidate for president and, um, all these really positive things happening. And on the other hand, we have this selfie obsessed, uh, superficial, highly sexualized, um, yeah. world where everyone thinks dressing like Kim Kardashian when you're 12 is fine. I mean, and, and I, I don't, you know, it's just, I'm having this real tension as in the feminist movement also where I feel that, you know, there's this idea of, well, it's empowering for me to be able to show off my body however I want. And that doesn't, that's how a lot of the young women feel. And that doesn't resonate with me at all. Um, I, yeah. <laughs> I feel much more that, you know, if we want people to not view us only as 
um, being valuable for our appearance or valuable for our sexuality or our use as sex objects, then we need to, you know, carry ourselves as if other things matter besides our appearance. And I feel that this whole selfie world is just, I, I'm very distressed. I'm very distressed by the state of, yeah. of media at the level right. of perfection, the way everyone even looks. I, it's, yeah. I mean, up and down the age, actually, there's moms that are looking like, you know, so well-maintained too. I mean, it's up and down the age spectrum where I feel like the pressure to look a certain way among women right now and and it's starting so young and they're being sexualized so young it's very distressing to me <laughs> so yeah it is it is and so just to be able to be for me I connect with people one-on-one I don't connect with people in groups so for me to connect with these girls one-on-one really just through texting and messaging and and tell them you know for instance one girl recently told me that her boyfriend finally asked her to like date you know like a real girlfriend boyfriend thing and and I just immediately was like that's great but you know how you treat him you teach him how to treat you and don't take anything less than you know what you deserve and I just I just feel like I want to fill her up full of um, positive things and that she knows that she has power in these relationships, um, there's just uh, so many different instances of what teenage girls have to navigate these days. And even when I was in high school, like high school was not, those were not the best years of my life. And I tell anyone that ever listens, if you're in high school, it all gets so much better. Just, it, you know, just get through this. It all gets so much better. That's true. I wouldn't say high school was my golden years either. <laughs> no, no. So pay it forward. That's the lesson there. I, one thing, you know, I'm trying to do with this podcast actually is save some of the younger generations of women, some of the strife that we've had to go through, right? Um, right, and, right. These lessons. And But what I found is that we can also learn from them you know, particularly the millennial generation. I, when I try to mentor someone who is in that younger generation, I find that not only do I have a lot of, you know, wisdom to send to them based on my experiences, but that I actually learn a lot from them. And there's a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. that is very encouraging, despite this whole selfie obsessed thing that really upsets me. The other part of it is that Um, They really are, you know, building on the accomplishments of other, you know, the women that have come before them. And they really are expecting things to change in a way that we would just kind of accept it, that this is the way it is. Right. I agree. This is the way it is. They're not accepting that. They're not accepting, oh, that's just the way life is. You know, they're not. Right. Yeah. So I I think there's some very optimism as well. But I definitely think mentoring and and paying it forward and and providing that one-on-one support to younger women is very commendable. And thank you for doing that. Yeah. Well, part of, uh, one of the most favorite things I do all day long is to check in with my girls. (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, do you have any, I I know we're running long. Um, do you have any parting, um, bits of wisdom or things that kind of you just wish you would have known sooner, um, in your career that you'd like to end on? I think I would encourage people to always have a more long range plan. I know when, when we started growing, I, I, I did this vision narrative, which was um, recommended to me 
uh, to write. And it's really, it wasn't a business plan. It was more of a, what do you want your life and business to look like in five years? And that's when I kind of got my head out of the weeds and realized that, hey, in five years, all of my kids are going to be gone. Like my, my life is going to look so different in five years. And all of a sudden, I thought, I better start planning for this and working toward where I want to be when my kids are gone, when this phase of life changes. So yeah, having a more of a long range plan, I wish I had had that earlier. So I kind of saw this coming. It's kind of, it's, you kind of get caught because if you do that too much, then you're always planning ahead and not letting things happen more organically in your life. And, and you might get caught uh, by surprise when changes happen, which they always do. Uh, but just having that vision, just the vision of what it might look like in five years is a, a really good planning tool. I agree. So the a basic idea is you want to look into the future, make a plan, but then still be open and flexible for those changes that come your way. But at least you've kind of laid out where you want to be. Yes, perfect. Mm-hmm. Well, Sherry, I've so enjoyed talking to you. Um, if, if folks want to check you out online, um, where should they go? They can go to scottarchitecture.com. That's our website. Anyone could feel free to email me if they have any questions at sherry at scottarchitecture.com. And that's, that's S-H-E-R-I, correct? Yeah, right. And you're changing the name of the company though, right? We are. We are re- totally rebranding to Springhouse Architects. So by the end of November, you can find us at springhousearchitects.com. Wonderful. Well, thank you, yeah. Sherry. I've enjoyed this so much. And I think there's going to be a lot of good pearls of wisdom for our listeners. And I appreciate your time today. Great, Sally. Thanks for what you're doing. I am glad we found your podcast and we connected and um, I appreciate what you're doing as well. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to our podcast, rate and review us on iTunes, and most importantly, tell a friend about us. Thanks for joining us.